Greetings program. Hello and welcome to Tronologically Speaking, a movie by minute podcast talking about Disney's 1982 movie Tron. I'm your host Duncan Shields and with me today is my witty, handsome, compassionate, clever guest co-host Alan Sanders from The Wilder Ride. Welcome Alan. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I know when you first announced this, I was like, oh, that would be such a cool movie to do. So I'm really happy that I get to be part of it. Going through all of the minutes, I realize there's a bit of a, a bit of dead air in the middle. But there's, luckily, there's, this movie was so innovative that there's lots to talk about. And there was such a huge team working on it, breaking new ground everywhere. So it's a great, it's a great film. It's one of my favorites. Uh, why don't you tell me a bit about yourself, Alan? Well, depending on what you want to know, um, I do have a background in broadcast radio. It's something that I was doing on the side for, I initially thought just for fun, and it turned into 20 years now of just for fun. It's still kind of a sideline gig. It's not what I do for my main job, but I work at a regular radio station doing the morning news, um, uh, or sort of the news hosting uh, from 6 to 9 a.m., which allows me to then come home and do my real job. I own a video production company as well as a web development company, so I kind of have that nerd geeky side of me that also gets satisfied by the creativity of coming up with video shoots and scripts and working with clients to kind of make their visual ideas come to life. Uh, beyond that, I, I, I'm very involved in the community. I serve on five different nonprofit boards. I'm a, I'm a big believer in you know doing things to help everybody in my own backyard. I've got four daughters and a wife, got six dogs, simply because we are addicted to rescuing animals. Big fan of uh, rescuing, not looking at the puppy mills and things, but trying to find animals that need a forever home. And if your idea of a forever home is putting them on a chain and on a, and on a tire in your backyard, then you're not a dog owner. Uh, they yeah. belong in your house. They're a member of the family. So um, other than that, got into podcasting a couple of years ago, stumbled across this, this whole idea of the movies by minutes through a buddy of mine, Harper Harris, who did the thing minute. Yeah, one of one of my favorites. I, he was uh, Harper was um, an inspiration to me because I I was gonna do this with somebody, but they said the the uh, commitment was too much, and so they wanted. I said, well, how can I do a solo? But I just listened to uh, Harper's thing minute, and he'd done it solo. So I was like, oh, it's possible. It's possible. It is. Yeah, if you have strong guests or you feel good about it, um, I loved the idea. I was I, I got hooked just being a guest. And that same year we recorded, Gene Wilder passed away. And so it was sort of in this back of my mind, the idea of doing one of these. But I didn't know the like in my mind, the cool franchises had already been taken. You know, Star Wars, Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, you know, the Rocky, all those really good franchises. And after the passing of Gene Wilder, I remember I actually had a, a, a dream. I, I was just having this like confrontation with a group of people as if we're all brainstorming well what are we going to call this show what are we going to call it and i was like well if it's about gene wilder let's call it the wilder ride because you're on one wild ride right and i woke up nice. thinking that exact phrase so i let it percolate for a couple of days got with my buddy i was like hey have you ever wanted to do a podcast And he's like what <laughs> and he was like actually he said that's so funny i've just been thinking how can i do more creative stuff he's a detective by day fun job but he's like, I just need some, I need an outlet. So we started talking. Next thing you know, we launched uh, our own version looking at the films of Gene Wilder. So rather than picking a movie franchise, we attacked it from the angle of, well, let's pick a body of work by an actor. And so, so far we've already done Young Frankenstein. That was our inaugural season. We wrapped Blazing Saddles last season and announced that coming up in 2020, we'll be doing Silver Streak, the first pairing of four, but the first of uh, the pairings of Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. Oh, yeah, I guess there was four, right? 
Yes, we would probably only do three of them because the fourth one, Another You, is really not that good. Oh, yeah, that's right. So it was Another You, See No Evil, Hear No Evil, Stir Crazy, and... Uh, Silver Streak. And Silver Streak, yeah. Yep. Right on. Yeah, they were they were a good duo. They really worked well together. Yeah, we're really looking forward to that. And one of the, I guess I can tease this. Here, you get an exclusive. We were able to reach out to uh, Richard Pryor Jr. Richard Pryor has several children, but Richard Pryor Jr., who is an actor, he lives in New York. I chatted with him on the phone, got in touch with him, told him what the project was. And at the very least, we're going to have an extensive interview with him about his dad, his dad's work with Gene Wilder, his work in the film. We're hoping we can maybe even get him to sit in on an episode, but at least at this point in time, we know we're going to get an interview with him. That is wild. Wow. That's great. It's wilder. (laughs) It's wilder. It's wilder. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the minute here. Let's just go over what happens in this minute. The recognizers are continuing to close on Clue's tank. Flynn's doing some expert hacking, and he sees a recognizer, shoots it, and then uh, crashes into a wall and gets caught. And unfortunately, that seems to be it for Clue. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's too too bad. But one thing in the beginning I want to talk about here is that Jeff Bridges seems to be doing a lot of uh, top-notch nonsense coding. Like, just coding quickly. i got to program quickly to get my programs into the programming place so that everything works. Uh, You know, like when they're trying to hack past encryption codes in those old movies like... uh, hackers or swordfish or something like that yeah isn't it interesting i mean if you know a little bit about how this works it's if you're if you've launched a program to sort of do its thing you've already written the code for the program it's not like you're oh i just thought of a new way to add a a new feature (laughs) now let's recompile on the fly it doesn't work like that yeah like pause break insert recompile (laughs) now check it out see if it works that doesn't happen on the fly you prepare it all and then you send it as a package in my that's what I as, I, as I understand it. And here's the funny thing as well, and I get it. It's a Hollywood thing, but it's sort of like the person who keeps hitting print and it won't print, so they keep hitting print and they keep hitting print. Redoing the command isn't really going to make it work faster or better, or if it's not working the first time, sending a variation of the command isn't really going to help either, but it does create that tension, you know? I was looking at um, his finger taps, and from what I can tell, he's spelling out R-E-R-H-J-K-L-H in that one shot where we see his, <laughs> his fingers. But he's got his pinkies extended and he really, he's really given it a hundred percent and like that he's typing with intent. Mm-hmm. So that's a, I like that. There's a, there's a website where it t- makes your screen black and no matter what you type, it types in nonsense code. So you can look like you're hacking the mainframe in a movie or something like that. Oh, really? <laughs> I need to pull that up. <laughs> Uh, it's just hackertyper.net. Just go there. <laughs> but now you too can you too can feel like a hacker. <laughs> Join the world of the underworld, the, the underbelly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, and I don't know how much you want of when we remember like seeing it for the first time, but I remember like I got a chance to actually sit in the movie theater when it came out. I remember my mom and yeah, dad were yeah. they did not want to go see it. They saw the they saw the trailer and they go, "Oh no, we're not going to go see some silly movie that looks like that." So uh, they actually dropped me and my brother off. We had a, a brand new, like the, the mall that had, uh, where we grew up uh, just outside of Detroit, uh, where I grew was it up. Was uh, like a, a smaller city, like a smaller suburb? Yeah, it was a Detroit. smaller, like a suburb of Detroit. But they had built right. Lakeside Mall. And the big thing about it was 
they had their theater, but the theater was built into the mall. So you had to go inside the mall and then you went to the theater. So you couldn't come in from the outside. There wasn't a box office on the outside of the mall. It was, it was, it was, like, it was like another store, almost like a Sears or a Macy's. And I remember she said, well, I'm going to go shop for a couple of hours. You go watch the movie. So I was by myself. I was with my brother, but we were not with family, not with mom and dad. And it never occurred to me when I was watching the movie, for some reason in my head, the only person that was double cast was Jeff Bridges. It never with the with the color coding and the scheming and the and the voices. I never realized that everybody doubled themselves in the computer world. So when I got older, I was like, how did I miss that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> but I thought that was like I thought it was just Jeff Bridges was the only one who was in this Tron world. Everybody else knew who their maker was and who they were modeled after. But it never occurred to me it was the same actor. For some reason, it was OK that Jeff Bridges was the same. Yeah, I never thought about the other the the other folks. It makes sense with Jeff Bridges because he gets like sucked into the world. But I guess with exactly. the other ones, you've got Bruce Boxleitner wearing glasses in the real world. Uh, Cindy Morgan's hair is down and she's got glasses. Doctor Walter Gibbs, he's got wiry hair and fuzzy cardigans. So in the computer world, they've got all this headgear, and uh, so I could see I could see being young and missing that they were that they were different that they were the same people. Yeah, I was 11 years old when this came out. I was uh, 11 and a half, you know, because uh, my birthday's at the end of the year. So in 82, um, yeah, I was 11 years old checking this movie out in the theater. I think we're about the same age because I was around there too. I was born in 71 in October. So I think... Uh, yeah, I think you're a year younger than me. I was born uh, late November 70. Yeah, so I was like 10 and a half seeing this in the theater. That blew, and, my, and, it blew my head off. I loved it. It explains why we love it. <laughs> yeah, I think if you if you see this now... I think it doesn't have anywhere near the same impact that it did back then. Because back then, computers were still mystery boxes. They were still, who knows what happens in there. They were still, like, I don't think there was anybody that took this movie literally. But there was enough mystery in the computer world that you could still make a movie like this and have people sort of be willing to make that leap of belief and that suspension of disbelief. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I remember, I guess I was a geek before there was the term because uh, we had some Atari 5200s in our library at the elementary school growing up and before I went to middle school. And I got so hooked into the computer, the games, learning how to even do basic coding that I actually signed up for an after school computer thing where someone was trying to teach you basic commands. And then I started getting into video games. I already had an Atari 2600 at home. So from that age... I have never not had a gaming system or played on my computer. I still, to this day, am a gamer. So in those formative years when I'm learning about how cool this is and everybody else was like, oh, whatever, this movie blew me away because I was like, sure. I'm in the computer world. I'm watching people who are in the world of the computer. You know, they're playing the game they created only, oh, my God, now there's like consequences. You could literally die in this world or de-resolution. <laughs> or de-res, yeah. In, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the tank. This was also done by the computer Magi, the computer company Magi. And it's a wild thing to try to comprehend how these were all made. Like, the model is made in each frame. The model and the camera have a, an XYZ translation and an XYZ rotation. So what the animators would do is they would get out some graph paper and they would write down those coordinates. So that's six coordinates per frame per object and 30 frames per second. So for 10 seconds of animation, they'd write down 1,800 coordinates for one object and one camera, assuming they were, like, not turning. Like, I imagine the turret on the tank would need 
other adjustments. And then they'd ship that off to the computer company and the technicians would punch those values into the computer, render it out, taking like 10 minutes a frame or whatever. And then uh, the first time the Tron animators would see the results would be on a 70 millimeter screen during dailies to see if it turned out, which is just, it's just wild to contemplate. Like it's so brute force and old school and it required such a bridge of communication between the technicians and the animators and so much trust on both because the technicians were not animators and the animators had no idea what was going on with these highly custom computers that were being used by the companies to do the animation. Isn't that amazing? And I think, and in your research, you might have uh, other examples, but in my mind, this was the first, quote, 3D computer animated movie. Like, I can't remember anything that relied on actual computer rendering animation to the degree that Tron did. And I felt, even if you didn't like the movie, Disney earns huge kudos for seeing the potential of that technology that long ago. Yeah, and they they needed it at the time. Like it was interesting because Disney at that point had been churning stuff out. Like after the passing of Walt Disney, they tried to recreate that Walt Disney feeling and that Walt Disney formula. And it ended up being very anti-Disney because Walt Disney was a huge risk taker. When like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out, the idea of a fully animated 90-minute feature was Looney Tunes. It was bonkers. No one had ever done it. It was uh, just a, an undertaking that couldn't be done. So expensive, too much manpower. It would take 50 years to even make one. And then they did it, and it was great. But there's no way they could do it again. But then they did it again, and it was great. And both times they almost bankrupted the whole company to get it done. And then Jungle Book was the last time they sort of were just on the ropes. And then they came back with an animated feature. But ever since then, they've been sort of just trying to do animated feature after animated feature after animated feature. And everybody was used to it now, but they couldn't take any risks because they were Disney. And that was an imprint right. now. That was like a, a box. You knew what you got. But then people were starting to become a bit more cynical, a bit more awakened. And they were trying, I want something new from my cinema. I don't want any of that Disney nonsense. And so it started to just gather dust a little bit and become a relic. And so there was some new blood that we're trying to like try out some new things and that's where we get like watcher in the woods and the black hole and movies like that that was sort of like almost family horror a strange new genre that disney was trying to produce and then tron was part of that you know they took it to disney and disney was like yeah sure sounds great and disney was like 20th on their list of people to take it to because they knew that disney would never say yes to this <laughs> because it was so out there but then they finally got to disney and disney was like yeah let's do it they were like what's going on you know up is down black is white sure okay and so they ended up in in, uh, in bed with disney to make this movie that's that's amazing um yeah and that's, that's what i love about doing these kind of podcasts and that's why when you said you were going to launch into this because I knew you were going to do the same kind of research we do for our own podcast. So you're, you're, you're explaining things to me right now that I had no idea. And, and I love this movie, but I just haven't gone and done the background research. So I think that's incredible to hear, you know, those kinds of tales of how you know, they needed something to take in it to, to, to go out on the limb. But at the same time, this other company is like, mm, what the heck? Shop it to Disney. <laughs> What's the worst that happens? They just say no. I find it's like that with most almost all movies you know like things like this with tron because the original 
Steven Lisberger had his own animation company, and they had done Animal Olympics, which was this Olympics, but it featured a bunch of animals with the voices of Harry Shearer and Gilda Radner and Billy Crystal and all these stars. And they were going to do it in the, they were going to show it in between U.S. Olympics coverage. And this was going to be their big shot. And it was all said and done. And then in 1980, the U.S. boycotted the Olympics because the Russians had invaded in Afghanistan and the, Rus- the Olympics were being held in Moscow. So they boycotted the Olympics. And so Steven Lisberger's animation company was like, so <laughs> what, what do we do with this huge, lucrative, awesome Animal Olympics deal that we had? And they're like, I don't know. Put it out on DVD or something. Or no, there, I don't think there was DVDs at the time. So they were kind of boned because they were going to use the profits from that to make Tron themselves. But now they couldn't. Right. So now they're like, oh, now we got to wow. take it to somebody to partner. Wow. And that's how they ended up going with, with Disney. So in retrospect, it worked out great. But at the time, that must have been just horrifying, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, at around second 27, we get a sweet, sweet scream from Jeff Bridges. And one of the, one of the things that all of the directors and producers talk about in the behind-the-scenes interviews is how on board Jeff Bridges was from the beginning. He understood that it was far out and it was strange, and he was all in. And I think you can really tell it, not only from his hacker coding, but from his uh, scream, his clues, his clues scream. It's 100%, and it's a shriek. It is just a shriek. I love it. I heard some people say that his robotic delivery as Clue might have contributed to his monotone delivery in Starman, which was a couple years later. Oh, you, okay, here's the thing. I have been a Jeff Bridges fan probably my whole life, and it started back with Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, the movie he did with Clint Eastwood. Oh, what a good movie. And I, I was like, oh, this guy's awesome. And I was a kid. Like, I see it on TV with my dad or something. And then I hear, oh, Jeff Bridges is going to do a King Kong movie. And I see that on TV. And so when I find out Jeff Bridges is in Tron, I'm like, I got to go see it. Not only does it look cool, it's got Jeff Bridges in it. So I have been a Jeff Bridges fan my whole life. Uh, ironically, we just did a special sort of uh, standalone Patreon show for our offseason. where we broke down The Big Lebowski, which may be one of my all-time favorite comedies with jeff bridges in it that was interesting i had to come around to the big lebowski the first time i saw it i really didn't like it at all i thought it was uh, a fall from grace for the coen brothers and then friends of mine loved it and everybody was loving it and i was like what am i missing and then i saw it again <laughs> i saw it again like five years later and i was like i was like was i high this is fantastic <laughs> like five years later i was laughing my brains out going i, I think i'd because I'd seen Blood Simple and Miller's Crossing, and I think I was expecting a tight little script. Yeah, But instead, yeah. it's me- meandering, and it doesn't really end, and the mystery doesn't really get solved, and it's more just a character study, and I think that really that really threw me. But it's, a, it's an amazing film. But you know the thing that you're talking about in terms of Jeff Bridges' performance when he's all in to the project? Yeah, he's all he's in. He's all in in The Big Lebowski. Like, I cannot imagine anybody else playing that role the way he does it. There's no one that's going to capture the way he does it because he's just so genuine. And that same sense of genuine, like I'm a real person in this real world, I think that's probably why I like his performances because it's not like he goes through a lot of effort to change his voice or you know he doesn't do a lot of body shaping or anything for his roles. He's kind of the same kind of overall character, but he just believes so fully in what he's doing. Like you forget, this is the same guy that was the bad guy in Iron Man 
that start, that launched the MCU, the guy that was going to steal Stony, Tony Stark's plans. And I was like, oh my god, it's yeah. Jeff Bridges, you know? Yeah, yeah, he really he really gets in there. All right, when uh, when Clue's tank crashes, there's uh, concentric circles that come out from the collision, and we see that a few times uh, in other explosions during the film. Now, Clue tells the character Bit to leave. He's like, Bit, get out of here. Now, in the, I found out in the concept art for the movie, the Bits had faces, like comical, grumpy, or smiley faces, like they were going to be the animated comic relief. And I'm glad they, uh, I'm glad they didn't go that way. But they still managed to keep the com, the com, they still managed to keep the comic relief part, because the way it's like, no, yes. I remember that making me laugh as a kid, but I'm really glad they didn't have silly little faces or something. Do you realize, and I'm so glad that they didn't put faces, I had no idea, but I actually, as this 12, you know, 11 and a half year old kid in the theater, not really understanding that bit only meant on or off, and after yeah. the movie, when I started learning a little bit more about the computer, I was like, oh my god, that's why bit could only say yes or no, it's a bit, it's either on or yeah. off. Yeah, like it's great. You learn that later when you're programming and you're like, oh, it's, it's, it's accurate. It's a way. It's a way of depicting it anyway. And to make sort of bit be like the sort of pseudo guide, almost like your pet or your dog or something that's helping to guide you. <laughs> it's such a clever idea in the computer yeah. world and yet still stay true to how you actually code things. So you realize the people behind the script, at least in my recollection of the movie and watching it over and over and over, they understood at least at that time where the technology was, what bits and bytes were, what you know how they worked, and so to make it work in a movie that even the layman who may not be a programmer can still follow, I thought it was pretty pretty darn. It was telling of the writers and then of course the filmmakers behind it. Yeah, very imaginative and very forward thinking. Uh, then the century, okay, so the century, the recognizer descends on Clue. It, uh, the pylons detach and spin to come together to form a massive foot. And it stomps down on Clue, blotting out the screen. Although uh, it's apparently a transport tube of some kind. Do you, do, okay, when you saw it when you were a kid, did you know that? Because I always thought it crushed him. And then I couldn't figure out, well, how is he still alive later when he's being questioned? Yeah, I was like, that's that's it. That's it for Clue. Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah, I thought they, that they, res, did they, did they resurrect his flat, floppy body like in a cartoon <laughs> or something? Or, or like... So, and I still don't know. I mean, I guess I don't know how else you would have done it with the available technology of that time. But it's one of those little things that always still kind of bugs me that the yeah. recognizers are trying to crush whatever they're trying to capture. Like even in the light cycle ring, which I know we've got to try to stay focused on the minute. But even later, yeah. when they're trying to escape, they want to try to like stomp. And it's as if like somehow by crushing you, it absorbs you <laughs> and then you end up being transported somewhere. Yeah, you have to kind of roll with it, but it would have been. I mean, I don't know how they would have done it. Maybe a hole would open up in the feet when it comes together. So it's got this. Kind well, I of... thought in my mind, you would do that to like kill your enemy. And that if you were trying to capture him, that maybe there'd be a beam or something. You're trying to like, I was, here I am, you know, as a little kid. Well, where's the tractor beam? You know, <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, it's interesting in the screenplay in the novel, the recognizers don't, their pylons don't detach. They form like an energy net between their pincers says so they can run the net over people to de-res them or they can run the net over them to capture them so the whole pylons you know disconnecting and coming together to form a giant foot that's strictly for the movie gotcha because they do use the the sort of zigzaggy net later to yeah much later yeah to either i guess it's sort of a a throwaway scene sort of to to take care of the bubbles on the on the pulse beam or whatever okay well we'll talk a little bit about flynn's apartment 
Now, Flynn, we see that he's using an Apple III computer <laughs> to get up to his, uh, his shenanigans. Uh, and he's got a sweet Art Deco lamp that I think my dad actually had a version of. It's the like the woman holding an amphora on her head, only the amphora is the lamp, and she's got a, a flowing dress on. And we see some concentric circle op art, I guess it was called at the time. And uh, it, his, his apartment was originally envisioned as having a bunch of empty pizza boxes and slovenly detritus kicking around but i don't really see it in the uh, in the shot and i'm not no. sure what the i'm not sure what the japanese is on the back of his uh robe yeah i i i have no idea i i will tell you that's ironic that they wanted to have this notion that coders or programmers or these eventual this computer culture would be just stuffed you know empty pizza boxes because now the joke still to this day i, I actually uh for a long period of my career, I, I had about uh, 14 years I worked for IBM. And one of the things I was responsible for was I was a, a technical project manager, which was a fancy way of saying I could interface with the client to understand what the business requirements were of whatever operating you know environment we were going to have to you know create or build or, 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 or tweak. And I could take those business requirements and then go talk to the guys that were building or coding because they lacked the social skills to be able to deal with the customer directly. But I could deal with them fine. <laughs> you yeah, know? be that be that bridge. I, exactly. And it, it, the big joke always was because they would code. Sometimes they'd bang out code for when they get in a, in, in a run, they would just go for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours straight. So they would order pizza and just have these pizza boxes stacked up in their cubicle from just because they didn't want to go anywhere. Yeah. And so it's yeah. kind of funny that here's the again, the, the concept. They didn't use it in the movie, but the concept is still to this day 100 percent accurate. Yeah. Like in the in the novel, the paragraph about his apartment is, the room was disorderly, clothes scattered everywhere, interspersed with empty Chinese food cartons and pizza boxes and wax paper cups. The room contained several large commercial video games and an unmade bed that hadn't been used in quite some time. Flynn's white-trimmed black happy coat hung open. He had several days' growth of beard. All in all, he felt much as he had back during his most dedicated periods as a computer hacker, but he thought he'd scented victory and had the feeling he was on to something. So there's this picture of him being very, very uh, slobby. But another thing in the, in, the, in the novel is that Clue speaks like Wild West. Clue sees the first recognizer and he's like, oh no, it's the long arm of the law and stuff like that. <laughs> he's saying all this... And he keeps referring to Flynn as old Flynn. We got to do what old Flynn tells us to do. And uh, I was like, wow. That's now, looky awesome. here, partner. We got ourselves a problem. I'm on the scent <laughs> of a lost program. You're going to strike it rich. Y'all folks ain't seen any wild programs around, have you? <laughs> <laughs> that's too funny. It's too uh, funny want- to think of, right? I wonder if they all, if the writers at that point were uh, channeling the the first game you got with the Atari Twenty Six Hundred Outlaw. Oh, maybe, yeah, maybe. Oh my gosh, oh, that's a way back machine. <laughs> it sure is. And also, there's a bit where when Clue tells Bit to leave, Bit says yes, but he also says yeah and <laughs> see. He just starts busting out yes in like eight different languages. <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad they took that out too. That would have been confusing. Yeah. Yeah. 
What's interesting in this in the uh, in the screenplay is that Clue himself is described as a lone program sits at his controls. His armor is worn and beaten, and his glow is subdued. This is Clue, with his thermos of glowing coffee and his suicide jockey manner. He reminds us of a truck driver on an all night run, which I'm like, wow, that's not what we got in the uh, in the film. He doesn't look no. like a, a beleaguered, battered. 55 year old truck driver <laughs> kind of you know veteran warrior he just kind of he looks kind of fresh and new yeah and i don't think that would have worked to be honest I, I i because then it doesn't make sense through the rest of what we have as as our film the what the film we're talking about that we're seeing where there's a much better sense of sort of like the parallel world what you look like in the real world is kind of what you look like in this world if you've created the program that it takes on your mannerisms or your characteristics and i think I like that. You know, again, I didn't recognize it initially as a kid. It didn't take long when I got, you know, middle teenage, late teenage years, the whole VHF, HS blockbuster years of watching this movie over and over and over to realize I, I love that duality, that sense of parallel worlds. Yeah, for sure. I, I definitely, uh, I definitely agree with that. Oh man, there was something I was going to say. Oh yeah. The original, um, the original one of the problems they ran into was that the original concept for Tron was that he was going to be like a, a bodybuilder, like Arnold. Yeah, like Arnold, like a giant, overwhelming, strong Conan type force. Whereas Flynn would be this this whippet, this little this little stringy, thin thief, this quick little sprinter. And then when they cast Bruce Boxleitner and Kevin and uh, and Jeff Bridges. They're the exact same height with the exact same physique. So when you put them in their in their leotards, it's like twins uh, right. running around on set. So they had to like, okay, we've got to re we've got to rethink this. We've got the right actors, but that we're going to have to say goodbye to that body difference that we, we we had envisioned in the beginning, which I thought was 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 pretty fascinating. That sounds like a whole different movie to me. Well, and I think that's where I think we've seen the evolution of. To me, the more the more updated version of Tron in some ways is ready player one where yeah. you choose your avatar and you can make your avatar look however you want in that other world versus how you really look in this world. And that's yeah, a clever, sure. clever premise for that sort of sort of thing, which makes more sense based on what we do today. Like everybody creates their own character for video games or whatever, and you make them look how you want them to look, not, not, not how you look. That's why yeah. I think Tron still to me is, and maybe it's that nostalgia looking back is, well, of course you're, program would look a little more like you because it's your program it would have elements of you because you took the time to code it you took the time to create it why wouldn't it have strains quote unquote of you in it you know yeah so, your dna so to speak right so i mean I, I like them both i love the idea of the ready player ones and the creating the avatars but there's still something that's just about this that is just and maybe they did it because they <laughs> For, for for reasons that they didn't have budget or other ways to get around it, but it ended up being one of those happy accidents that I that I really liked. Yeah, and I think the way I picture it is like the world of Ready Player One. Underneath that is still the world of Tron. So oh, yeah. yeah, you've got your avatar that you've customized, but that customization program has the imprint of the person who made that customization program. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you're wearing a costume. That doesn't mean it's you're still who you are, even if you're wearing a costume over it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that takes us about to the end of minute seven. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, 
this is one of those seminal movies that made like it's the impact of of Star Wars. It's the impact of Poltergeist, yeah. of Ghostbusters, yeah. of Indiana or the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, those movies that hit me at just that perfect sweet spot growing up. That yeah. Whatever flaws it may have, when when I go back and rewatch it, it doesn't matter. I don't see a single flaw. To me, I'm suddenly that 11 and a half year old sitting there with a giant bucket of popcorn, a soda, my brother next to me, and we're just wide eyed staring at the movie screen, just oh my God, we're in the world of the computer. I mean, it's an instantaneous transport for me. So yeah, I guess I guess, I guess I got stomped on by a recognizer and now I'm back in the world of, uh, of Tron. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Uh, would you like to come back and do some more minutes? Oh yeah, absolutely. If you've got, uh, if you've got room for me, uh, I'm just a useless program that has long since ceased functioning. Since I, only, I have a wife and four daughters, I have absolutely no function in my own house whatsoever anymore. All I am is bit. I just go around saying yes or no. I'm usually a lot of yes. <laughs> oh, man. I feel that pretty hard. I got a wife and a daughter and a cat. I don't have four daughters, but yeah. We're, we've been reduced to bits. Yes <laughs> we are. No. We are bits. Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, where can people find you if they want to hear more of your happenings and insight? Oh, yeah. If you'd like to come check out our podcast and support some of these other Movies by Minutes podcasts, um, I always try first and foremost to let people know there's a whole bunch out there. So you can go to moviesbyminutes.com. Great website that sort of is a hub for all of these projects. Ours is called The Wilder Ride, and we got really lucky. It fits everywhere with that title. We don't have to shorten the name for one social media platform or add additional numbers or underscores or anything because someone has a similar name. So just The Wilder Ride. It's thewilderride.com, Wilder Ride on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. We have a Patreon page for those folks who want to uh, support the show financially. We've got a T Public store if you want to get some merchandise. But if you just do a Google search or a, a podcast search, if you're whatever you listen in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or Google Play, it's the Wilder Ride. Nice and simple. That's the name you look for everywhere. Excellent. Thank you very much. And for us, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, check out more at tronologicallyspeaking.com. Drop us a line on Twitter at Tronologically Speaking or send us an email at tronologicallyspeaking at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at the Tronologically Speaking, the Tron Minute by Minute listeners page. The intro and outro music were created by Roman Forster over at Pond 5. Go over there to find some more royalty-free uh, music if you need some. And special thanks to the Star Wars Minute that started it all. And... As we were talking about, go on over to moviesbyminute.com and see if your favorite movie is there. If it isn't, consider doing one yourself. It's a very inclusive and encouraging community. Uh, so on the count of three, do you want to say end of line together? Sure. <laughs> All right. One, two, three. End, end of, of line. line. <laughs>